1: wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech.
0: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
2: Hey, it's Seth and Molly.
3: Just chiming in to encourage you to support us on Patreon.
2: Big Picture Science really does count on our listeners to keep the show in production. And Patreon is a great way for you to support us on a monthly basis.
3: And it's easy. Just head over to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and sign up now. Not only does it help us out, but it gives you access to rewards not available anywhere else.
2: Everyone who joins us on Patreon gets early access to ad-free versions of every episode which means our Patreon supporters aren't even hearing this message right now.
3: (laughs) At the $5 a month level, you get access to exclusive bonus content, extended interviews,
2: movie reviews, and the Sci book club. In the latest book club bonus material, I get grilled like a cheese sandwich about my book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter.
3: (laughs) So join us at Patreon and hear all about Seth's adventures searching space.
2: Patreon.com slash BigPictureScience.
3: Thank you for your support.
2: Thanks. I'm not on social media much. I'm not of the generation that was raised posting vacation photos on Facebook or checking my timeline on Twitter. I wanted to jump in, but never really got a good feel for it, to be honest but I may have missed my chance to trend or be ratioed.
4: Something has been altered and the door has been opened to something else happening to the decline of these services that have ruled the roost for 15 years.
2: I'll modify the quote often attributed to Mark Twain to say that the death of social media may be greatly exaggerated, but something's happening. Facebook and Twitter usage is declining. The platforms are charged with contributing to a host of societal ills. But uh, maybe fixing things is not a matter of just tweaking an algorithm. Is there an evolutionary reason why humans can't thrive on social media? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Chastank.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, cultural anthropologists weigh in on the extreme behavior they're seeing on social media, how financial drivers play into shaping it, and whether this evolutionary mismatch will put a final nail or any nail in the coffin of social media? If so, what comes next? This episode is Post Social Media.
2: Social media is not working for many, perhaps not for most of us. Scientists and doctors have linked it to several detrimental outcomes, anxiety, depression, and loneliness. Then there's also the general rending of the social fabric. But it's sure working out for some. To illustrate how lucrative the platforms can be, here's a story about going
5: to extremes. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. I'm a professor of media theory and digital economics at City University of New York. Since the early 90s, I've been you know, writing and thinking and talking about digital technology, usually from the perspective of a fun, radical cyberpunk. Person. But, you know, after the internet happened, I started to get called to do talks about, you know, the digital economy and the future of this or the future of that. So I got this offer to go out to this resort in the desert to talk about, it was something like, you know, the digital future for a bunch of business folks and hedge fund people and tech investors. I was kind of sworn off them, but it was such a big amount of money that I was like, all right, I'll do it. The group
3: cryptically described themselves as ultra-wealthy stakeholders.
5: They flew me out to the desert business class and brought me in a limo like two hours away from the airport where I landed.
2: He was taken to a fancy desert resort, wined and dined and all that. Then came the morning of his scheduled talk.
5: And they brought me out and put me in this little green room and I'm getting ready to go on and, you know, do what a good talk about, about the future and you know, my usual thing on how we should be, you know, building technology that serves people instead of, you know, serving up people to technology and one of those. And I'm sort of practicing my stuff. And instead of bringing me onto the stage to do a talk, they bring these five men into the dressing room, into this green room, and they just sit around the table and they say, okay, let's go. He wasn't there
3: to go on stage to talk about the future of technology. Instead, an audience of five were brought to him. All men from the upper echelons of tech investing, at least
5: two, were billionaires. And the guys start peppering me with these questions about kind of what they should bet on. You know, augmented reality or virtual reality? Bitcoin or Ethereum? You know, very you know binary selections. And then they eventually get to um, Alaska or New Zealand. And I thought it was a joke, but they really wanted to know where did I think was better to buy land for the apocalypse, to put you know, a bunker or a resort of some kind.
2: That's when Doug Rushkoff realized this was not an ordinary consultation gig. The men wanted advice on how to protect themselves from the social catastrophe they believed is coming down the pike, something they were calling the event. One they can't fully describe, but in one way or another, one that would seriously disrupt society. Mr. Rushkoff wrote about
5: this weekend and its implications in a book. Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, that was the whole hour, really, we spent talking about their bunkers, right? And the the event was, right, the, the biological warfare or uh, virus that came out or uh, economic inequality or climate catastrophe or electromagnetic pulse or nuclear war or terrorist event or, or AI or nano, something that makes the real world unlivable, the event, the seemingly inevitable outcome of their
3: work. He said it was the wealthiest group of people he had ever encountered. A couple of them were venture capitalists who had built their fortunes investing in companies and technologies that were often disruptive. Mr. Rushkoff said that then it hit him. This was
5: a discussion about the future of technology after all. These are guys who are asking me for advice on how they can insulate themselves from the reality they're creating by earning money and building technology.
3: Their escape facilities range from bunkers to islands and just could you give us a description just how outfitted these places are? And and this is real. I mean, these are being built. This isn't just in the blueprint stage or kind of the blue skying stage.
5: No, there's real. I mean, they're at all different levels. Uh, levels of development and levels of uh, extravagance. So the really simple ones are um, kind of deluxe versions of the fallout shelters that people use in uh, tornado regions. So they'll take something like a shipping container and put it under the ground, and you know create generators and things and fake daylight so that you can live in a shipping container for as long as you need to after a after a disaster. To the very big ones you know the things like uh you know jeff bezos is building under the launching pads where his uh his rockets go or what peter thiel's building in new zealand you know which are giant um guarded estates there's a fellow i spoke with and walked around with on one of his uh one of his farms there's a guy named jc cole And he was like, oh, I've got the solution. You know, he's got these farms he's building where the idea is the, you know, the millionaires pay, invest now. And then when the disaster happens, they get on their helicopter or hop on their motorcycles or do whatever and get to one of these farms outside major cities. So he's building them all within a couple of hours of where billionaires tend to live. And his farms are meant to be more um, kind of long term, sustainable agriculture where he'll have biodiesel and some solar power. and They're preparing. They're preparing for something. Right. They're preparing, but these guys are, are preppers of a different order. You know, if you're prepping with, you know, $200 million, it's a different kind of prep. So the kind of prep that they do is, well, let's contract 10 Navy SEALs to, you know, to fly in at a moment's notice to protect our facility. Um, Some people want to prepare to, you know, on the sea. They either get an island that they think is defensible or some kind of, you know, a solar powered ship that they can go and then go on the ocean and then dock wherever it's safe later. Douglas, I know that you have written about extraordinary
3: events and ideas and seeing things. Did this astonish you? I mean, it is astonishing to listen to the length to which these people are going. And also that for most of us, we don't see it, we don't know about it. I had no idea that this was going on. Had you lost your capacity to be astonished by the time you finished reporting
5: this story? Well, I mean, initially, I was so astonished or disbelieving that I thought These guys were faking each other out that maybe none of them really had this, but they were playing a weird game of like, you know, what if I had this? Well, then I would have that, you know, that maybe they were playing something, but they're really they're really doing it. And in some sense, a lot of people I mean, we've always known that these guys are living in a way that is destroying the planet and that they, of course they would leave us behind they've always had this mindset you know stuart brand even said it in the early computer era you know we are as gods and we may as well start acting like them that they think of themselves as one level above humanity as as mark zuckerberg would put it meta right what is meta meta is a word that you use when facebook is no longer growing exponentially, you go meta on Facebook. You go one level above Facebook and say, oh, we're not Web 2.0, we're Web 3.0. Their mindset is one of being sort of masters of of everyone else's destiny. To get back to
3: those escape plans, Douglas, what kind of timescales are involved? How long are they planning to live in one of these bunkers? And are they imagining that they would go into the bunker and then not peek their heads out for... A century decades what, what are we talking about
5: yeah i mean w- when they were talking about their plans i was trying to explain well i could see that maybe working for a year or two you know particularly when they've got you know one of them was talking about the swimming pool and i'm like oh so it's a heated swimming pool with filters where do you get where are you going to get your replacement filter parts you know and then they're thinking well i you know i guess we could 3d print them or something You know, I was I was thinking that they could make it a year or two, but they were thinking, no, that we go from here to there, that it's permanent, that that's it, that the majority of the world becomes uninhabitable for the rest of their lifetime. So they do something else, tear it all down and start again and then do what they call Game B you know, which is, we're living game A now, just let it go, get to game B, and then rebuild it better with all of our great new technological knowledge. And it doesn't work like that. What they weren't really taking into account, and when I met with these guys, it was before COVID, was germs spread. You know, uh, eventually something's going to get there. Where's your water coming from? How are you protecting yourself from pathogens and mold? And you know they want to do you know vertical farming and rooftop agriculture and this it's like eventually some kind of mold gets in there and you've got to throw out you always do you throw out the top and start again but how do you start again where do you get the additional soil from you know, they they've got this almost virtual reality understanding of the world as a kind of a Sim City enterprise that you just, you know, reboot the computer or defrag the hard drive and start again.
2: Okay, this is kind of a wild story. They want to be prepared to escape a massive disruption to society in whatever form it comes, one that Mr. Rushkoff says that they had a hand in creating. And interestingly, according to him, these tech billionaires and venture capitalists seem quite certain this catastrophe is inevitable, which raises the questions of why, since they have the resources to stop it, they don't try and do that. But just how involved are investors in creating this future, really?
5: Well, I mean, for these guys, even if these aren't, and I did find the ones who are, even if these aren't the ones who are figuring out the technology, right? These are not, uh, the five gentlemen I spoke to are not really devising and building and coding, they, they were chiefly responsible for getting technology developers to pivot away from whatever their original designs were toward more extractive ones. So these were the people who got, say, Google to be unsatisfied with the several billion dollars in profit they were making and really forced them to find a way to 10x on that by taking the data that people were leaving behind them and then using that data against people. And the billions of dollars they were making were not enough. We needed, you know, or at least these investors needed hockey stick returns. They needed exponential growth. They needed to go, as Peter Thiel would say, from zero to one and then one to 10 and then 10 to 100. And how do you do that? Where now you take the data that searchers are leaving behind and use that to try to manipulate their future behavior. And that's where there was even more money. So I would say that while technologists were vulnerable to this kind of thinking, um, it really wasn't necessarily their technology designs um, that brought this about. You know, what would happen if you, if you steer your technologies towards the needs of venture capitalists rather than the needs of your users? Um, that's where these, these gentlemen could be considered culpable.
2: Douglas Rushkoff is a professor of media theory and digital economics at City University of New York and the author of Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires.
3: Okay, the venture capitalist installing his heated pool in a survivalist bunker somewhere might seem a long way from an ordinary civilian plopped on the couch with a laptop. But those investors in social media need users from whom they can mine data and whose behavior they can manipulate to encourage more engagement.
2: How do platforms like Facebook and Twitter do that? Journalist Max Fisher has written a book about it and gives us an example.
0: So when you open up your feed on Twitter or on Facebook, you think that what you are seeing are the thoughts and the sentiments and the ideas from people in your community, from just regular people who you might follow on the network, uh, and that's false. What you are actually seeing is a very carefully curated experience that has been pulled from a much larger universe of social media content that presented to you in a very specific way to elicit very specific reactions from you that are meant to change your behavior in ways that serve those companies' bottom lines?
2: Well, looking at it from the Darwinian point of view, you could say, look, this is going to happen no matter how you start out. You can read what Mark Zuckerberg thought he was doing when the Facebook was initiated. You know, this was going to be good for humankind. You spent some time talking in your book about the bros in the Silicon Valley, which is right where I am actually, (laughs) that that here in the Silicon Valley, that these people are not evil monsters. They're just, you know, they're trying to do some societal good. And it turned out there was a monster in the machine.
0: Well, they were first and foremost, they were trying to follow the financial incentives before them to make money. And they, they, early on, they talked about how making money and making a huge product that serves lots of people and keeps them engaged. They did talk a lot about how they thought this would also re-engineer society from the bottom up. But when it turned out that the latter part was not going to come true, that did not change the overwhelming, financially motivated drivers of these companies, which is just maximize engagement above all else.
2: Up next, Max Fisher presents more ways that media platforms manipulate our emotions to keep us engaged. What he learned
3: about the societal implications of a massive social experiment run on billions of people. This episode of Big Picture Science is post-social media. Hey Seth, can you imagine being asked to help billionaires figure out where to build their survival bunkers? Yeah,
2: such an absurd scenario. It's really hard to wrap my mind around it. What I can imagine is helping them figure out where to put their money. (laughs) You mean supporting big picture science? Yeah, but unfortunately my social circle is short on billionaires.
3: Well, it doesn't take billions to support big picture science. Anyone can do it with just a couple of dollars a month at Patreon.com slash BigPictureScience.
2: And when you join, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing you support in-depth science journalism.
3: You also get early access to ad-free versions of our show each week and possibly more.
2: And that more includes exclusive bonus material, bits of Big Picture Science that you won't be able to hear anywhere
3: else. In the latest installment, our assistant producer Brian Edwards interviews Seth about his book confessions of an alien hunter. I wonder if I confess too much. Well, if there's one thing social media is good
2: for, it's oversharing. Well, that's true. I do have one last thing to share, and it's that listeners can lend their support by going to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. We have evidence from numerous studies about how social media is addictive and drives some people to a change in behavior, occasionally with extreme consequences.
3: One devastating example is the role that social media platforms played in ethnic violence and even genocide in Myanmar in 2018.
0: Social media companies moved in very quickly to Myanmar when the country opened up after many years of dictatorship. You went from there were no smartphones anywhere to all of a sudden everybody is on Facebook and Twitter. And very shortly after that, for reasons that were complicated, but a number of which have been pulled back to social media's influence, there was an explosion of communal violence between the country's Buddhist majority and its Muslim minority that ended with the genocidal expulsion of much of that Muslim minority from the country.
3: A former Facebook employee turned whistleblower attested to Facebook's role in stoking division when she testified before a Senate committee in 2021.
5: My name is Frances Haugen. I used to work at Facebook. I joined Facebook because I think Facebook has the potential to bring out the best in us. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. My fear is that without action, divisive and extremist behaviors we see today are only the beginning. What we saw in Myanmar and are now seeing in Ethiopia are only the opening chapters of a story so terrifying, no one wants to read the end of it.
0: My name is Max Fischer. I am the author of The Chaos Machine, the inside story of how social media rewired our minds and our world.
2: Mr. Fisher writes about the global influences shaping events for the New York Times. He describes how Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and other social networks prey on psychological factors to drive their users to extreme opinions and, increasingly, extreme actions.
3: He begins by describing experiments that reveal what makes us susceptible to the outrage manufactured by social media algorithms.
0: Researchers took a set of research subjects and sat them all down, and before the experiment, they tested all of these research subjects for their innate level of outrage. Like, how prone were they as people to experiencing or expressing outrage? And then they had a subset of those people in the experiment send a fake tweet on a fake Twitter platform. They used a fake one so that they could, you know, control and manipulate the experience that expressed some level of outrage. And then the experimenters for some of those people took those tweets that expressed outrage and they showed them back to the research subjects who had sent them with a ton of engagement on them, lots of the equivalent of retweets and likes. And they did that because this is something that we know the platforms will take any post that has a lot of outrage on it, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, and they will really increase artificially how much engagement that post will get. So we know if you send something with outrage, there's a really good chance you're getting more engagement than you would expressing some kind of other sentiment.
2: When would you say outrage? I mean, you're just saying, you know, Look at what this guy did. I mean, a politician or something. I mean, I make outrageous statements all the time. What what do you mean here?
0: (laughs) So outrage in in the social side context, it's something much more specific than just anger generally. Outrage means an expression of anger mixed with disgust against something that is perceived to be a social transgression. So someone who has uh, cut in line, something who's lied and cheated, something who has transgressed a social norm. That makes you feel... Outrage, and then when you express outrage, what you're doing is you are alerting to the wider community. You know, hey, this guy is cutting a line. He's doing something against the social contract. He's doing something to transgress social norms. It's a it's a very important part of how we regulate ourselves as a society. But we also know that the platforms are determined; it performs very well online, which is why if you express it, you are suddenly going to receive a much wider audience that you would otherwise. So, so what happened? so in the experiment they showed people that they had gotten a lot of engagement on these outrage tweets they did that a few times what they found is that those subjects became one much likelier to send fake tweets or real tweets in the future that expressed outrage which is not shocking because they internalized that that social reward from the engagement that made them want to send more of it to get more attention more engagement that feeling of affirmation from the community but what really blew my mind about this study is they also found that those people in the experiment, regardless of how prone they were to outrage before the experiment became significantly likelier to feel internally outraged in the future and not just when they were online. So this this training that social media had very deliberately instilled in people to get them to post more outraged content because the platform's like that, because it's good for maximizing engagement, selling more ads, that it actually changed the inner emotional experience, the inner emotional nature of these people which is something that if you talk to social scientists who study behavior and learning it's not shocking we actually know that social feedback like that is something that can have an enormous impact on your character and your personality but what's amazing is when you see it on this industrial scale by these incredibly sophisticated platforms operating on you know billions of people and that's not just of course social media that's also um the nature of our brains is that we're very prone to outrage and also that when we are experiencing or expressing outrage, the more critical parts of our brain shut down. I mean, they literally fire after the emotional parts of our brain fire, so we can't think critically about, is this accusation that I'm seeing online that makes me so outraged and that makes me want to join in? Is it actually true?
2: Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like a positive feedback system, right? Exactly. That outrage is rewarded with more outrage and, you right. know, thumbs up on being so upset about this. Now. You know, a lot of this apparently is due to the algorithms that are used to, in fact, serve the customer, right? But is the fault really in the algorithms or is this just something that would evolve to the same place, no matter, you know, what the algorithm started out to be, that eventually they would notice that, well, gosh darn it, if you rile people up, you get more readers.
0: So it's it's both. You can't have this effect without human nature. You can't have... Uh, Facebook amping up genocidal impulses in Myanmar without some pre-existing tension between Buddhists and Muslims. You can't have it exacerbating polarization without there being distrust in Democrats and Republicans. But the scale at which these platforms target and hyper-amplify people's fear, hatred, and disgust of anyone they see as an outgroup the demonstrated effect that that has on people's minds, not just on what they do online, but on what they think and feel behave uh, is, it's an enormous scale. It's been demonstrated every step of the way um, at points when the companies have been a little more engineered towards or a little more geared towards public goodwill. They've acknowledged as much and they've acknowledged, yes, we played a role in um, the violence in Myanmar. There's an episode in Sri Lanka that I documented where Facebook played an enormous role in sparking mass violence. Uh, And when you see every step of it, it becomes really hard to dispute.
2: Is the solution here curation? Have some folks pawing through the mountain of content that social media platforms have to weed out the bad stuff? I mean, is that really a fix? Or is it simply a way to replace one problem with another problem?
0: Yeah, that's that's what the social media companies want to be the fix because it allows them to continue creating a product that is deliberately addictive in ways that create these problems in the first place, that create these behaviors in the first place and saying, oh, we'll hire some moderators to sort it out. But it's a little bit like saying, we'll put a different kind of filter on cigarettes. The problem is the core product is the, is the nicotine, is the tar, is the way that it's it's much as the cigarette is designed to be harmful, designed to be addictive. It's those core features of social media that are driving all of this.
2: Well, but honestly, I mean, what, what you've got here is a product that's not inherently dangerous, or maybe you would say it is, but that does cause harm. I mean, but you could say the same about kitchen knives, right? They are automobiles, right? There's a, there's a social benefit, but there's also the potential for killing 30,000 people a year. So, uh, you know, from sort of a moral point of view, what is the responsibility of these platforms, do you think, in terms of, you know,
0: what they're doing? I, I would actually maybe push back on the, the premise of your question a little bit. There's there's a lot of positive that comes from social media. None of them comes from the engagement maximizing features that are causing all these harms. And we used to have a form of social media before like 2007, 2008, that was more neutral, that did not have algorithms, it didn't have things like viral likes and shares, it didn't have news feeds, It ha- it did all the things that we want social media to do, it promoted all of the good but it didn't have these harms. So a a defense you hear from the companies is like, well, there's no way to untangle the good and the bad, so you have to take both, and you're not allowed to tell us to turn off the algorithms because they might do good things too. And that's just not true.
2: Well, I mean, just judging by Mark Zuckerberg, because he testified, uh, you know, to Congress, and he said all the right things. He said the things that made you think, look, I'm not an ogre, right? We're doing something here that's really beneficial for society. And he, he may indeed Believe that's true. It just may be the nature of the device, and I, I just wonder why social media are different from some of these other things that we know are dangerous too, and people just don't get riled up about them. Is it the fact that well they're free and you know they're on everybody's phone? I mean, why is it that social media is the bad boy?
0: Uh, well, compared to what?
2: Well, <laughs> I don't know. Com- that's a good question. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll go back to automobiles that, you know, actually kill a lot of people. And uh, yet we don't uh, say, well, sorry, I can't build any more cars.
0: Well, but we have an enormous number of regulations around how to use cars safely and what you're allowed to do in a car and not do in a car. And we do that so that we can maximize the good produced by cars and minimize the harm. Is that the formula here? I don't. It's, it's tough to come up with, an exa- with a perfect formula, particularly because we don't, Social media is not actually necessary. Like without cars, the, the economy ceases to function and large parts of the world go without food. Facebook has been shut off in countries before. Entire countries have just blocked it. They said you can't get Facebook, you can't get Twitter. And the country continues to run. Things are still basically fine. Now, I'm not saying that means that we should block social media, but it's, it's I think sometimes... There's there's a line from the companies that says, well, you can't even talk about regulating us until you come up with a, a metaphor and an analogy that we find acceptable and that you know makes us happy about it. You say, well, it can't be cars because how do you can't regulate cars like that? It can't be cigarettes because of this social media is it's its own thing. It has a very specific form of harm, but it's also a harm that is is getting pretty close to universal in the world. But the effect on our society has reached a point where we are asking questions like, does it? determine elections has it caused genocides not just one has it caused multiple genocides has it led to you know i've met people whose family members died because of things promoted by and on the platforms and so when i hear people from the company say oh you know we really it's like a car and we really need a car so if you guys could just stop complaining about how we did a genocide because we wanted to make some more ad revenue there's no upside to that the upside to that is just for people who work in silicon valley
2: yeah well, that just being a contrarian here, I could point to things like the Arab Spring example and a lot of that was dependent on the availability of social media simply for communication amongst those who you know were rebelling against autocratic governments and you say, well, that was a good thing
0: absolutely and it's, so that is actually a great example i 'm glad you brought that up because there were a number of activists in Egypt and several other countries that participated in the Arab Spring that when it happened were exuberant and so grateful to Facebook specifically and social media generally. And they had a very good case for saying we would not have been able to gather in these numbers we would not have been able to affect this kind of change without these big open platforms. And those are things that derive from, like we talked about this kind of pure social media where you know that doesn't have much to do with the algorithms, that's just having a big open forum. And a lot of those activists came back three or four years later when these countries and their revolutions have completely fallen apart, and they said, you know, the revolution didn't fall apart because of Facebook. But they said, we had no idea the effect that these platforms are going to have. They are tearing our society apart. So named Weihl who who is an engineer at Google, spent a long time in Silicon Valley, true believer in big tech. And he came back, I think, in 2015. And he said, we thought Facebook was bringing us the revolution, but it was, it was tearing us apart. It was spreading this misinformation. It was promoting this social polarization between these different social groups. So people hated each other. It's become this toxic not just a toxic place, but a toxic part of our society. And we thought that it was there to do good for us, but actually it wasn't. It was there to promote the interests of Facebook and selling ads and driving up engagement because that was going to work for them.
2: The chaos in the machine produces chaos in the society. Well, finally, Max, I just got to ask you, are you on social media?
0: Absolutely. You have to be. (laughs) You can't can't not be. these, These companies have been so successful at completely dominating... So many different parts of our world, the way that we consume news, the way that we relate to each other, you can't exist in the modern world without being on them. And that's why, you know, when people ask me like, oh, should I, you know, delete all the apps and check my phone into the river and, and go live like I'm in the 19th century so I could be offline? I would say, Let, if you could pull that off, that's great. But most of us can't. So we just have to, whereas an individual, you kind of have no choice but to accept that social media is here and has this effect on us. But the, maybe the best thing you could do then is just try to be aware of its influence on you and try to limit that as best you can.
2: Max Fisher, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you.
0: Max
3: Fisher is a columnist and reporter for The New York Times. He is the author of The Chaos Machine, the inside story of how social media rewired our minds and our world. You know, Seth, um, I'm thinking here of the theme of social unrest, uh, the social catastrophe that the tech billionaires are anticipating and trying to avoid that Doug Rushkoff told us about, um, with the not hypothetical role that media platforms are playing in the actual social unrest and violence in some countries.
2: Well, yeah, I listen to that with interest, and I can believe it. The social media people have recognized that, you know- bad behavior, anger, and disgust sell, that that, uh, you know, produces more listens. People are interested in that. That's not a new finding by any means. But uh, the fact that the social media companies might be using that fact to sort of amp up the anger, yeah, that's that's something new. So yeah, there's something to it. Max Fisher suggested that, as harmful as it is, we can never get off social media. But that may be changing as we're about to hear. Meanwhile, he also points out that the harm social media does is close to universal. Perhaps the problem is humans didn't evolve to communicate with their thumbs all day long to everyone.
1: The millions and billions of followers that people can have online on social media and is pretty unprecedented in human history and, and prehistory.
3: Next, a cultural anthropologist weighs in. This episode of Big Picture Science is post-social media. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
2: We've heard in what ways social media is harmful, how its algorithms draw users into compulsive engagement, encourage them to see complicated issues as binary, to pick sides and feel outrage. Max Fisher said it even trains us to maintain that anger offline.
3: This is unhealthy, but there is a fundamental reason why social media in its current form has such pernicious social effects and why we seem to have little defense against
4: it. I'm Ian Bogust. I'm a professor of media studies and computer science at Washington University in St. Louis, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Social media was never a natural way to work or play or socialize.
2: The cultural anthropologists would agree. And they invite you to learn more by reading their science papers, perhaps even their blogs. Yes, their blogs. Or by exchanging ideas with them in person, because for the most part, they won't be compulsively posting on Twitter but they are fascinated by the cultural phenomenon of social media.
1: It's kind of a good example of cultural evolution because there's no planner, there's no plan. We are just sort of muddling through, and some aspects are good and some aspects are bad. My name's Alex Massoudi. I'm a professor of cultural evolution at the University of Exeter in the UK.
3: If social media is not working well for us, maybe it's because it's not what our brains evolved to do.
1: Myself and other cultural evolutionists, cultural anthropologists, study the the evolution of human cognition um, and how we think and reason within an evolutionary framework. And I guess you can see social media as magnifying the kind of evolved cognitive biases that we have and that, we, that we've been studying.
2: Okay, cognitive biases. These are things that grab our attention, that we remember and pass on to others. And he says humans have a negativity bias we're drawn to stories of danger and things that might harm us.
1: So it might be adaptive to pay attention to the, uh, the leopard that's in the tree because that's a pretty dangerous stimulus rather than the ripe fruit in the tree, for example. It's kind of useful but it's more important to be aware of the leopard in the tree that might eat and kill you. So we can see this kind of negativity bias uh, maybe online being magnified by social media uh, where negative stories get more traction Most of these cognitive biases are kind of adaptive in a small-scale situation where you know everybody and you're interacting face-to-face with people on an everyday basis. And you may know people from other villages, but it's nothing compared to the the millions and billions of followers that people can uh, have online on social media and that is pretty unprecedented in human history and and prehistory.
3: We evolved to be social, of course, but not on this scale.
1: I guess we've always communicated for similar kind of reasons. So we we often communicate to keep up with social relationships and keep up with what other people are doing. Even small-scale hunter-gatherers will talk to each other to find out what the neighbours are doing and compare practices with their practices. Trade, we think of trade as modern, but small-scale societies often trade objects from village to village. But I guess hunter-gatherers often had a lot more free time and spent more time maybe by themselves in the forests. And so perhaps the volume of interaction was just a lot lower than the the volume of, of interaction that social media exposes us to in our society.
4: And so when the scale of your interactions changes from a handful of people or maybe a few hundred maximum, not just to like thousands or millions, but to the idea, the assumption that you deserve an audience. of of thousands or millions, that you're just a kind of temporarily inconvenienced social media star, that changes our expectations for every encounter uh, that we have. You're no longer doing it because you want to communicate or you want to understand, uh, but because you want to become uh, a broadcaster or you want to be acknowledged uh, for what you're saying or you want to yell at someone for what they're saying or, you know, those kinds of things.
3: Here's something that gives you an idea of the amount of socializing we evolved to do Developed by British anthropologist Robin Dunbar, it is the number that reflects the cognitive limit on the number of relationships or friends that our brains can handle. Alex, what's the number?
1: Dunbar's number is 150. So Robin Dunbar came up with this by extrapolating brain sizes across different primate species, Uh, assuming that our brains limit the number of social interactions we can have, number of friends we can have. Robin concluded that um, 150 is our, our limit. And I guess it's also about the quality of the relationships that we have as well. So I guess 150 is the number of maybe meaningful relationships that we can have with people that we know, acquaintances that we interact with face-to-face.
3: And in what ways is it taxing on the brain? And I guess this is asking, what is the brain required to do to keep up relationships?
1: Well, I guess social relationships are much harder in a way than um understanding the, the physical world so if we need to keep up a social relationship we need to keep track of you know not just our relationships with them but their relationships with other people that we might know the friends of our friends and acquaintances of our friends Um so it's a kind of uh, much more complex problem than understanding where food is or how to navigate around a landscape because it's constantly changing i guess things like theory of mind kicks in. So you need to understand that other people have different beliefs to you. Um, and so you're not just, you know, a tree doesn't have a mind, whereas a, a friend does. And so you need to remember what that friend remembers, and what that friend remembers that you remember. And so the complexity quickly ratchets up.
4: Yeah, and you know, Dunbar, um, the 150 number is, uh, by some accounts, massively too big. That, that, that's like the total number of people that you have some relationship with. But our deep relationships, the ones that are important to us, that might only be a handful or 10 or 15 uh, kind of close or trusted uh, friends and, and family. So maybe even smaller than that. But if you think about like, how would you feel if you had 150 social media followers? You'd be like, oh, wow, this is, this is terrible. Um, I'm not important uh, at all. And when we fall prey to that desire uh, to have a lot of friends or simulated friends online, the importance of those relationships, uh, their meaning and their significance, it has to decline because nobody can have a real relationship with thousands, tens of thousands, uh, millions of people. And yet the technology makes it appear as though we can. One of the problems
2: here is that cultural evolution moves faster than biological evolution. Now That's pretty intuitive. You can pass ideas along faster than you can inherit genes. We may be suffering from the ill effects of rapid cultural evolution, but Dr. Masoudi says that speed is beneficial too.
1: That can be a good thing, an adaptive thing. It's kind of why culture is adaptive to our species and has made our species so successful, because we can have adaptive culture spread so rapidly, but it can also be maladaptive and have harmful consequences, because the the long-term consequences of new ideas, new technologies, new practices are often not tested adequately and we don't realize that they're harmful for us quickly enough to combat their their negative consequences.
3: So Alex, could you give us a historical example of a harmful cultural practice that was found to be maladaptive and abandoned by a group as a result?
1: So, I mean, one example that springs to mind is the um, the prion disease uh, kuru, which uh, afflicted the Foray people in Papua New Guinea. I think back in the 50s and 60s, this was a prion disease, much like mad cow disease that we had in the UK, uh, which spread through the practice of uh, widows eating the brains of their deceased husbands, uh, and so prions kind of spread through consuming brain, and it caused this neurodegenerative disease, which took several decades for the symptoms to be manifest and because it had that long gestation period it took the society a very long time to uh, make the connection between this brain eating practice and the Kuru disease. And so, sadly, lots of people um, were afflicted by Kuru before the practice was abandoned. So it may be a bit of a leak to social media practices, but kind of suggests how if it's not obvious what the consequences of a, a new practice or new technology uh, might be, then it can take a society a long time to, to abandon that practice.
3: You may actually have um, stumbled upon the perfect metaphor for social media. I'm sure some people would say it is a brain-eating disease. So in that way, the uh, analogy or the example is, is really appropriate.
2: Well, if social media is no longer appetizing to us, might it go away too? Professor Bogus thinks something is happening.
4: I think something's changing, at least. Uh, you know, when I talk about this, people will point me to how successful Instagram or TikTok or whatever still is. And it's true. We're talking about uh, services that have billions of users uh, and that are massively successful for the companies that run them. But a combination of factors have at least suggested that there's, there's cracks in that, uh, in that wall. Well, first of all, the whole tech sector and the whole economy is, is declining uh, uh, somewhat. And so the wealth... Associated with running these services uh, has at least been uh, interrupted to some degree. And we see these big companies like Facebook and Google laying off tons of people, their revenues down, their stock is down. And anytime that happens, it causes um, uh, these for profit companies to make different decisions. They have to shift to something else. Uh, Facebook, in particular, which made this you know kind of ill fated shift into the VR metaverse uh, world new. Okay, well, something has to give. This can't last forever. We need to do something else. And then when uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter, um, whatever you think of of Musk, it, it disrupted the service and the way that it behaved. So it's less like that. I see people using social media less, which of course they're kind of not doing in large quantities, but rather that that something has been altered and the door has been opened. To something else happening to the to the decline of these services that have ruled the roost uh, for fifteen years, and that's where it starts. It always starts uh, somewhere small, and then grows sometimes quickly uh, into new trends, or at least into the decline uh, of old ones. Uh, and I, I think that that you know that's likely, or at least possible. Uh, in the coming years,
3: mm-hmm. what's interesting about your answer is it sounds like this is a, a shift in the market or in the the economic viability of these platforms, not because people are saying, you know, what this is really not healthy for us.
4: Yeah, people. It always takes more than we think to change our behavior. Like, think about smoking, which is an interesting comparison. Like, how long did it take for smoking to become? A practice that wasn't mainstream, you know, that you had to go outside with the smokers uh, at work um, to take part in it took it took decades. I think the difference between social media as a social practice and other kinds of prior social practices is that we outsourced the whole of that social practice to these giant technology companies. We chose to sign up in in a technical sense. Uh, But culture in this case was driven uh, by market power and the power of capital. And so I think we need to look to cracks in that edifice before we um, can conclude that culture alone will make the shift. It's almost too much of a burden to put on ourselves, too, to say, well, we'll just all kind of give it up and move on to the next thing. Because what is the next thing and what's going to replace these uh, habits that we formed around socialization, even if they're you know, kind of sociopathic for us to pursue. They're still the ones that we're used to.
2: Okay, well, as we look for solutions, perhaps we should keep the best of social media
1: Humans are a cultural species, and so what makes us distinct is the fact that we share information. We have a growing pool of adaptive information that we learn from one another, from our technologies and our social institutions and our scientific theories. Uh, and so social media is could and should be a platform for sharing that beneficial pool of information um, and spreading it to as many people as possible. We know that cultural evolution is better and faster in larger societies or larger populations because you've got more people coming up with good ideas. Uh, You're less likely to lose information because there's more people to remember things. So in theory, uh, if you have a large population on social media, all spreading and preserving knowledge and that can be beneficial.
2: So what might a beneficial social media platform look like?
1: What we need to do
4: is to, to talk to fewer people less often. We need to break ourselves of this habit. Of trying to seek the largest audiences for everything all the time, I think a lot of young people, younger people, uh, have a more uh, rational approach to this this process too. Even online, um, like you'll see, you know, kind of Gen Z age uh, folks, you know, locking down their Instagram. It's only like the people they really know. The, the things that we used to do, or you know, keeping a Twitter account to kind of see what's going on, but you know, not really using it to, to post, maybe they, they use it for news discovery, which doesn't work so well anymore, but once did. And some of those techniques, you know, they're not, they're not that big a change. Like, well, just get rid of all your followers, uh, all of your followees, all the people you follow on like Twitter or something and go back and add like 50 people or a hundred people, put a cap on it. Even that, even that simple thing will, will change the way that you relate to that particular attention space. And the truth is we're going to need a lot of this stuff. It's not going to be one thing. It's going to be dozens of them. And over time, as we slowly find our niche in them, they will add up to a hopefully new and healthier kind of social practice.
3: It sounds like you're defining the concept of downscaling, which is one that you've yeah. advocated for in print.
4: Yeah, uh, this is huge. I mean, I'm, I'm, anything that can be downscaled should you know the, the technology companies themselves built all their wealth on the idea of, of mega scale, of growing as fast as possible, of serving as many customers as they can, of collecting as much information as they could get their hands on. And it was never um, reasonable, it was just possible, and uh, an enormous amount of wealth and influence uh, developed around it. You know, downscaling doesn't have to be like regulatory or doesn't have to involve the the splitting up of these companies through, you know, antitrust regimes. Although those things would maybe be helpful, too. It can also just be a matter of, you know, just turning the volume down a a little bit on the way that you're you're interacting with others, especially people you don't know or don't have meaningful relationships with already.
3: Ian Bogos, you said that. um People would be aghast if they only had 150 followers. If I get up to 150 followers, I will be thrilled and then I will begin my downscaling <laughs> to, to the appropriate Take it number. Back to 15. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us.
4: Oh, thank you.
2: Thanks also to Alex Masoudi, a cultural anthropologist at the University of Exeter in the UK.
3: So, Seth, that brings us to the big picture of the show. What is your take? What is your hot take on uh, these issues involving social media?
2: Well, you know, it's 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 interesting in the sense that we have a new technology. Now, we've had new technologies in the past that were in some ways social. You know, the the telephone, even radio, where you could speak to millions of people at the same time. And they all had consequences for our behavior, for society, and, you know, we somehow muddled through. So I'm kind of wondering whether the fact that, you know, this new phenomenon isn't also one of those kind of episodes that we routinely go through. And just as a rule, generating a problem is usually much easier than fixing the problem.
3: (laughs) Well, my personal take, when I read that Ian Bogust had written an article with a headline about the possible coming end of social media, I cheered. I'll tell you, Seth, I am ready to downscale.
2: Molly, that's just so admirable. I mean, that's really a good move. Well, anyway, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or when you cut down your followers, as we heard suggested, be sure to keep us.
3: This show would not be possible without the adaptive skills of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly
2: Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, Lauren Trottier, Rina Shulsky-David, and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates the social mechanisms that have led to an intelligent species. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
3: The original music in the show was created by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at our relationship to social media and if it needs to change, Is called post social media.
0: Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming.